Welcome to the Explore Words Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we explore the new space race and astropolitics, discover the intersection of space, politics and international relations, as we discuss the presence of spy satellites in space and the prospects of humans on Mars, once the stuff of science fiction. Recorded at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, experts Dr Jill Stewart and Professor Chris Newman reveal the far-reaching real consequences of this merging frontier. Good morning, and um, thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Let me just introduce us. So I'm Colin Philpott. Um, I've been involved with this festival as a host of events, as I say, since it started. Um, I used to be director of the Media Museum across the road, and before that I uh, worked for the BBC, so that's my uh, sort of background. Um, and I'm delighted to welcome two people joining us today, today to discuss what's going on up there, okay? Um, and they are Chris Newman, who is Professor of Space Law and Policy at the University of Northumbria. Um, he's active in teaching and research of space law and has published extensively on the legal and ethical uh, underpinnings of space governance. He's a member of the International Institute of Space Law, member of the British Interplanetary Society, and has contributed to their celebration of the 50th anniversary, recently, of the Outer Space Treaty, which we will talk more about anon. And Dr. Jill Stewart is an academic based at the LSE, um, an expert in the politics, ethics, and law of outer space exploration and exploitation. Um, Jill appears frequently uh, in different media outlets around the world, and she's on the editorial board of the journal Space Policy. Now, when I was young, which is a while ago, um, I can claim, unlike I'm going to say most people in this room, some people of my generation are older, but unlike myself, I can uh, claim to have been there pretty much at the birth of the space age. And it was dead exciting, um, including, I can remember, negotiating with my parents to be allowed to, I think, get up in the middle of the night, because I think it actually happened about three or four o'clock in the morning, UK time, to see Neil Armstrong walk on the moon in July 1969. Um, but of course then, in a sense, it was all very simple. You know, the Americans and the Russians were racing each other to get to the moon. The Americans won, and then a few years later it sort of all stopped. Um, but now it's a lot more complicated. Um, there are private players as well as state players involved in what's going on in space. Um, and there are lots of different issues. And of course it's not all just to do with the moon. Um, but I suppose one thing that is still the same in many ways, is that the battles played out in space still in a way reflect the battles played out on Earth, because obviously politics was a key factor in the whole race to be first uh, to the moon. So, with Chris and Jill's help over the next um, hour, uh, we're going to try and sort of walk our way through understanding some of the key developments and what's going on and what the issues are, and there will of course be an opportunity for your <coughs> questions and contributions later. Okay, um, so let's start by sort of understanding how you guys got interested in all this stuff. Jill, what's, you know, what, why are you interested in space and space law? So 
I often get asked if I'm sort of a science fiction fan, and I know we might talk a bit about science fiction later. I'm actually not. Uh, I got interested in space through um, an interest in politics and law. And I think what drew me to the topic is how space seems to tap into the extremes of humanity. So we have these narratives about science and exploration and figuring out who we are and seeing our collective humanity. But then on the other extreme, it, it, it is sort of a force multiplier for military purposes. It's about control and force. And I think that those tensions are really are really interesting. And we certainly see them on Earth. Um, and one of the other things that I've been interested in is this idea of feedback loops. So the way that we, tr we project terrestrial politics, our politics on Earth, into space, but also how space has the, the potential to reconstitute those politics on Earth. So both in terms of enhancing um, co cooperation, collaboration, um, you know, the easing of political tensions, but also ramping those up. And so it was sort of that spectrum that, that got me interested in it in the first place. I was actually an undergraduate studying politics, and I had an assignment to write a paper on law, any area of law. And I went to the library, and there was a book on space law. And to be honest, at age 20, I thought I didn't know that even existed. Um, and I picked up that book, and you know, 23 years later, I'm, I'm still researching <laughs> still in that okay. area, so yeah. And Chris, I think there's a Bradford connection with your interest in all of this. Yes, um, <clears throat> I'll start by apologising because Jill gives lovely literate academic answers. And what you, get, what you get from me is channeled through the eyes of a very enthusiastic six-year-old. <laughs> I am a science fiction fan. I love space exploration. I've loved it ever since I was you know, old enough to, to what I'm talking. Yes, uh, one of the reasons I'm so, so really privileged to be here is Bradford plays a part in my space story. Because at the Media Museum, um, me and Colin were talking, and he mentioned, oh, the, the, the 40 years of first, first IMAX in the country. Was the first mm, IMAX mm, in the country, mm. I think? First IMAX cinema in the country. And I was like, I know. Because my uncle, when I was, a, when I was an eight-year-old kid, brought me here to see IMAX, and there was a, a film on, and it was called The Dream is Alive. And it was a, it, it's about the um, uh, STS sort of 28, one of the very early sh mm. shuttle missions. And actually, if you watch it now, it's got three of the astronauts who died in the Challenger disaster on it. So it's, it's, it's a really interesting historical and space historical curio. But yeah, so Bradford, Bradford played a part in my space story. So uh, as I say, it, it, it's, I've always wanted to be involved in space. Um, I'm too fat and cowardly to be an astronaut. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm not clever <clears throat> enough to be a space scientist. So I found my way through to, mm -hmm. to law. And, um, and it, it, this has always been part of a grand plan to in some way work in space. And, and so space law became a natural sort of progression for me. My PhD was in um, chaotic constitutions, looking at the way in which constitutions actually, although they pretend to be ordered, are actually really messy and chaotic, because we're all messy and chaotic, right? And space was a part of that. So that's kind of my journey. It's, it's you know, as I say, every answer I give, view it through the lens of a, of an, a slightly enthusiastic six-year-old. Um, I've actually got a better claim to fame. <laughs> <laughs> in relation to uh, space than either of these guys, if you'll just allow me a brief story. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter, and she's exhibited quite an interest in the moon from obviously an early age. And her mum and dad bought her a book about the moon, and I was reading this book to her, and it sort of goes, you know, what is the moon? You know, the moon's made of this. Where is the moon? Blah, blah, blah. And the next page of the question is, um, has anybody ever been to the moon? Yes, 12 people have been to the moon, and the first person to go to the moon. So I'm reading this to her, and uh, I said, oh, yeah, Grandad can remember that. I can remember when I was a little boy watching on television when Neil Armstrong was the first person stuff in the mirror a long, long time ago. And then we carried on with the rest of the book. A few weeks later, my wife was reading the same book to her. 
And she gets to the page, you know, it's all phrases, questions. You know, has anybody ever been to the moon? And my granddaughter pipes, oh yes, granddad went to the moon when he was a little boy. <laughs> so, so there you go. Um, now, let's do a bit of definition to start with. Because the term itself, astropolitics, I mean, I have heard of it, but it's not, you know, it, when, who, who invented that terminology? Do we know? Or when did they invent it? Do you want to take it? Yeah, I was going to say, it started, it started to develop in political science circles 25, 30 years ago. And, you know, it, it, we talk about geopolitics. Astropolitics is the, is the next logical sort of step on from that. Looking at the political drivers, the political ramifications, yeah. the interrelations between states that go into space. So we're talking about astropolitics. We're talking about diplomatic, economic, Legal bleeds into it, I would say, as well. So we've got a we've got a catch-all term here for, as I say, if you think about geopolitics, take it a hundred miles up that way, and then we start talking about astropolitics. That's how okay. I would that, that makes sense. Mm. Anything? Yeah, I would just add. I think one of the things that's important about the this term and discussions about astropolitics and space politics, I think we also call it, is um, reminding people the role that politics plays in space exploration. So again, I think we like to think about the noble scientific exploration, crude missions, and so on, but people are increasingly aware of how space activity influences our everyday activities, and a lot of that comes down to politics. People don't always like to hear that. I actually had somebody walk out of a presentation I was giving one time because I was reminding people that the core war was really what drove the first um, the, our first activity in space people like to think of it as being more neutral than that um, but yeah I think it's important to understand where the motivations and where the money for space activity has come from in the past and astropolitics the study of astropolitics and space politics has been an important part of that within the social sciences okay um, let, let's try and sort of do a quick survey if we can of what's going on up there because, as I said, it's not just in the old days. It was straightforward when it was you know, NASA for the Americans and the Russians. It's rather more complicated now. So now, the first thing is most people will be aware, of course, the Americans are going back to the moon, aren't they? Quite soon. And it's going to be a woman who's going to be the next person who steps on the moon. So when's, that, when's all that happening? I don't know the ex do you know what it's a... So, yeah. with deadlines and space, what you've got to understand is that they tend to be ambitious. <laughs> That's the phrase I always Going use as well. Going back to what Jill said about the politics of the yeah. thing, you know, if, and, and it will be an American president will promise we're going back to the moon or we're going to go to Mars or we're going to, you know, do whatever we're going to do by a date that normally hits their election term. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we're seeing with, I mean, we noticed it because Project Artemis really gained impetus under President Trump. President Trump and Vice President Pence, the, the, the former incumbents of the White House, they were really interested in space because they thought it was a, you know, big flagship type of thing that they could do. So we saw Art Project Artemis was going to put people back on the moon Round about when Trump was going to be re-elected at the end of his second term, it was going to be his sort of crowning glory and his, his gift to the American people. It didn't quite work out like that. And what we're seeing is a, a contraction of the budget, and when the budget goes that way, the deadlines <laughs> go that way. <laughs> so to sort of, I've, I've given you a, a sort of a, a lawyer's answer there, Colin, because yeah. essentially the aim is to have a, a circumlunar flight. So basically Apollo 8, it was a figure of eight around the moon. So you, you, you set off, go around the moon, use the moon's gravity to fling you back to Earth, and you do it in a sort of a figure of eight. That's how it, that's how it works. And there's plans to do that either next year or the year yeah. after. I would think yeah. probably 2025, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20. 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 
realistic. I don't know yeah. what you think. Yeah, I am. If it doesn't get delayed for various reasons again, but yeah, I think that's initially the timeline. Around about that. And you were telling me that, that <clears throat> taking inflation out of it, this is a much lower budget for doing it this time around than it was back in the 1960s. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, if you think about what the Apollo program was, it was, and, and recognised at the time, I mean, this wasn't something that, that, we, that we get with history, recognised at the time, it was the, it was the next thing after the Manhattan Project. It was a concerted national effort, half a million people, 400,000, half a million people involved in Apollo in one way or the other. The, rec you know, the, the estimate is it was a billion pounds to put one person on the moon every time. Every time a person went on the moon, it cost a billion pounds. And again, you, you look at the figures now, upwards of 130 billion pounds is around about the estimate of what it would cost to, to do the Apollo program. Because, of course, Apollo was one mission, throw it away. Next mission, throw it away. Every time they were starting from scratch again, it wasn't a, a sort of a continuity. Sure, they learned lessons and the technology improved itself, but it wasn't, a, the, the, there was no infrastructure. You, you did Apollo 11, and then you were back to square one to do Apollo 12, and back to square one to do Apollo 13, and you were really back to square one because they had to redesign <laughs> the command module. So that's kind of why it was so expensive. Now, so, so the Americans are doing something probably relatively soon, and what, what else is going on in terms of um, countries that are actively involved in sp space exploration? Yeah, actually, can I just come back? Yeah. I just wanted to follow on, and then I'll come back yeah. to that. Yeah, I just wanted to mention in terms of um, cost, it, I think the other thing to appreciate is during the Cold War space race, this the um, the space race was re really being used as a proxy competition between the Soviet Union and the United States. There was this huge incentive to invest a lot of money into it, especially when there was a threat of a nuclear war. This is a way for the two countries to compete with each other in a cold manner. And that um, it was actually a benefit to the United States that it cost so much money because it was a way to show that they had a really strong economy. Mm -hmm. um, it demonstrated that they had strong politics, a strong economy, and strong technology. Technology that has a military subtext because if you can put a human into space, you can put a missile in into space. So in a way, it was um, conspicuous overspending on this project. The only other thing I would add on that is, aside from reducing the budgets on projects like Artemis now, the cost of space activity has come down. And that's partly why we're seeing um, a, a much bigger um, uh, group of entities that are being active in space, which segues into the next question. So one of the things that I think is interesting in the contemporary era is that we have many, many more countries who are accessing space. And there are a few different ways that this can be done. One is to simply buy um, a satellite and have it launched by somebody else, which gives you um, Ca uh, space capacity that way you can rent time on satellites the next sort of level up is to have your own launch capabilities which the United Kingdom has been trying to develop recently um, but at, at, at the present time there's maybe only 10 around 10 countries that have that um, freestanding capability not, I don't, yeah. don't need a list of 10 but just rough so we're talking about the Americans um, uh, Chinese the Indian Japanese yeah. Um, yeah. Israel yeah. Um, North Korea North Korea yeah. okay yeah okay yeah. Um, and then the next level is yeah. having is having crude capabilities, and that's the really elite club. Um, but at the same time, that and activity who's is in the elite club. China, so China, yeah. um, the United States, Russia, e and European. and yes, and yeah. India, yes, and India is, oh, is exactly. aspirational as well. Okay. So you have countries like mm. Canada that have yeah. astronauts, but they fly with yeah. NASA and so on. Um, 
but that's really more for, for scientific, really, activity. So, yeah, there's this, this much greater access to space activity that individual countries have become involved in. And so we're generally seeing, speaking, those countries that are involved, we'll come on to the private players in a minute, the countries, where are they trying to go, as, apart from the moon? Low orbit. Earth orbit. <laughs> Low Earth orbit. That's, yeah. that's where the okay. money is. Yeah. That's okay. where the money is, so they're going, they're following the money. Okay. To do what? So essentially, in outer space, there's, there's, there's a, a limited number of things you can do. You'd think mm. satellites sort of evoke images of, of uh, you know, infinite possibilities. Mm. But basically, if you're up there, you can watch, yeah. you, can, you, know, you, you can look down, yeah. communications, mm. you can measure, you can do scientific measurements as well, you can do coordination and timing like GPS. Mm. Um, and that's it, you know, it's, it's quite a limited plate of, of things that can be done. Now, Jill, as you, 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 we were talking about this earlier, and Jill rightly pointed out that that covers a whole range of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think we, we forget about the ways in which things like telecommunications um, and, for example, so GPS satellites are involved in, in financial transactions, international financial transactions. They use the timing, the clocks that are on these satellites. So, um, so even though it's sort of a broad category of watching, um, communicating, um, that actually ends up permeating its way into a lot of our activities. One of the other things that we're talking a lot more about right now with these mega constellations, so sending up a lot of small satellites, um, you may have heard of OneWeb and the controversy around that, um, and Elon Musk's um, company as well, uh, and that's for internet. So we're also looking at being able to provide internet um, okay. to geographically so, remote regions. So is it, is it a broad, broadly accurate to say that a lot of this is it's not about getting a long way away sort of Mars and all of that maybe is less important to countries involved in this. It's more about sort of using near space for a variety of purposes you've described. Is that? Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's, it's when I, back in the, the, the dim and distant past when I first started, there was a, a mantra that they, we, we, we talked about data from space. That was the new goal. That was going to be the new stuff that was going to make us all wealthy. There's not really a lot of money. It, we call it upstream. Upstream sending stuff up to space. Mm -hmm. And there's not a lot of money in that because it's quite expensive to do. So, you know, even still relatively expensive. It's the downstream. It's the stuff we get down from space. That's always the, you know, you think about the applications, the stuff that Jill was talking about there, the GPS, your mobile phones, etc. That's where the money lies. Mm -hmm. And so that's what, com that's what countries want. I think also countries who look at it from a commercial point of view, there's also countries that look at it from a diplomatic point of view, right? They, they see space as something that advanced yeah. countries do. We're an advanced country, so we're doing space. We need to be part of the action. Yeah, yeah. yeah I would just add, um, I've just completely lost my train of thought. Oh yeah, um, yeah, we talk about, again, kind of linking into feedback loops, how when we look out, we actually end up looking back in more than anything. Um, with science, maybe more out-out. But a lot of what we do is looking back in. Uh, just to add, though, that there are these companies, I think, that make the headlines, mm. which for a while there, it was a lot about mining, potentially mining resources, mining asteroids yeah. and comets. I think a lot of us who were in the field at the time knew that that wasn't probably financially viable. It had the feeling of a bubble, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it did, okay. yep. And a lot of these companies have now gone under. The thing is, is the expense of extracting resources and bringing them back down to Earth, it's not really financially viable. Plus, if you flood the market with precious stones, for example, you, the, the, the value of those is going to go 
is going to go down. So we do still talk about mining resources for use in situ. So, for example, mining water from the moon for missions that are there. But <clears throat> so there are companies, um, SpaceX, talking about wanting to go to Mars. I think for a while they were talking about making a reality TV program alongside of it and all of these things. But a lot of times I think those make big headline splashes. But mm. really the, the bread and butter for commercial companies is much closer to home. Okay. So in terms of the private players, obviously the Elon Musk and I suppose Richard Branson are the two probably best known in this field. Now, Branson's not gone well, has it? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's kind of a problem. I mean, the, there's, the old, there's the old cliche, and I'm sure you've heard it in relation to many industries, but how do you make a small fortune in space? You start with a big fortune, all right? And, and this is what you're seeing. It, 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 it's expensive. Developing it is expensive. And also what we're finding is that, you know, and it's the oldest cliche, and I almost hate myself for saying it, but I'm going to say it. Space is difficult. Getting up there is difficult. It's not an easy task to do it. And I think trying to pass it off as something mundane, something that we'll be doing, it, it, I think that, that's, you sort of, you know, that leads us into difficulties. And I think that's what, the, that's what the, big, you know, the big conglomerates, the big companies are trying to do, very much paint space as, hey, we'll, be, we'll all be going there soon. And I don't think that's the case because it is tough to get there and it's expensive to get there. And it is very, very intolerant of mistakes. You know, the, the, the mechanics, the engineering behind it. I'm not an engineer. I, I sort of couch everything I say. I'm sort of conversationally literate in the science, but I'm not an engineer. But it's difficult. It really is. So, so is Branson, I mean, Branson's company involved in this has gone bankrupt, hasn't it? So Virgin Orbit, the, the orbital <clears throat> launch thing, which, which I think was very much seen as kind of the cash cow of this, mm. Um, has, has, has now lost it because, of course, what's the one thing you want from a launch provider? If you're putting a satellite, you know, even if it's a, a relatively cheap satellite, what you don't want is the satellite not to get into orbit. You know, there's enough problems and difficulties once you get up there with operating, but you want the, you want the launch vehicle to be reliable. This is where Elon Musk's done so well, because his launch vehicles are very, very reliable. I would just add, actually, I, initially I thought you were talking about Virgin Galactic, um, but speaking of companies that are also yeah. finding money mm -hmm. to make, a, a, a ways to make money, a lot of money, um, but in a way that makes headline, it doesn't actually affect us all very much, is space tourism. Mm -hmm. um, Virgin Galactic is still going, but they're a classic one of having seen their timelines dramatically delayed because one of their test flights crashed, yeah. um, what was it, about 10 years ago yeah, now, I think, it it, and it killed one of the pilots so um, but yeah space tourism is another area we were talking earlier about the analogy of this um, the Titanic sub um, this idea of marketing this is is something that's you know accessible and potentially safe when in reality it's extreme tourism um, you know it's similar to maybe wanting to climb Everest you don't have to have the same physical capabilities with Everest but it continues to be very dangerous as well as expensive okay that, that's helpful getting a bit of a reminder of sort of What's going on so in terms of the sort of who's trying to control all of this and how it's regulated uh, it'd be helpful to get an understanding of, of that you know what is the so if I decide I have got enough money which I haven't to want to go up into space can I just do it or I mean who controls all this stuff so yeah. this is this is my wheelhouse this is where I, I start talking um, and it's, it's really interesting because actually space law um, is one of those rare legal disciplines which started before the activity itself. You can trace space law back to 1911, where, you know, at the Paris Air Show, and then they were talking about law above the ether, because they didn't quite know what was going on up there. So they started to guess what was going on up there and started to try and develop a legal framework. I think the first mention of space law was in about 1928. 
Um, 1930s, we saw a dramatic explosion of it, because, again, that's when we saw dramatic explosion in, in, in yeah. terms of science fiction. Yeah. So we come to Sputnik, 1957, and it was on a new, basically on a nuclear missile. They took the missile off and they put a, they put a satellite on it. And it was decided that really the international community needed to get together. So they did in the United Nations. Now, this was again in the heyday of the United Nations. We'd just seen the end of World War II. Nations were convinced that they had to work together. So they formed what they call the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, COPUS. So if I talk about COPUS, I'm talking about this committee of the United Nations, where at the, at the start, was, was it 12 or 18? It was, it was around that number, a very small number of states, I think 18 maybe, got together and decided, okay, what are the principles that we as human beings are going to look to deal with and look to manage when we go in outer space? What are the things that we want to do and what are the things that we don't want to do? So they started off with these very basic principles. Right, nobody can own space. We're going to make it communal territory so it belongs to everybody. Right? That means you can't make a claim of ownership. That means you can fly, fly freely about the orbit of the Earth. One of the big things in, 19, in the 1950s and 60s was the threat of nuclear war. So, right, well, you can't put nuclear weapons in outer space. Now, military strategists will tell you putting nuclear weapons in outer space is a terrible idea anyway. What you really want to do is hide them under the sea. Mm. That's the best place to put your nuclear weapons. <clears throat> but nonetheless, orbital platforms with nuclear weapons was a, was a terrifying prospect. So they outlawed that. They then realized, well, hang on, how, how are we going to do this? And actually... It's only going to be a state that's going to do this. Going back to your point about the private companies coming through, very much seen as a state activity in the 50s and 60s. You need a superpower budget to go into space. So we'll make states responsible for their own activities. So much as, and this is a very crude analogy, but much as if we <coughs> want to drive, what we have to do is the state can't sit on our shoulder every time we get in the car, can it? What we've got to do is demonstrate that we're competent. We demonstrate we're comp competent to a state official, the driving examiner, and he gives us a license. That's exactly how it works in space. They demonstrate their mission to the, to the regulator. They show the technology that they're using. The, the, then the regulator says, yeah, okay, I'm going to grant you a launch license. I'm going to grant you a license to go into outer space. And who is the regulator, though? It's, the, it's a national regulator. It's a national it's regulator. A civil, civil aviation civil, Absolutely. Yeah. So what we have, the way to think of it is almost as a triangle. Because we've got no sovereignty in outer space, states are responsible. States are also liable for any damage. So any damage that happens in outer space, states are responsible for damage caused to another state. And then there's this final bit of the triangle, registration, because it's because it's, it's you know, non-sovereign, they need to, they need to tie it to a state. So we do it by having a state of registry on a craft. So whenever you read, right. people will say, there's no, oh, is there any law in space? Yes, there is. And it's the Outer Space Treaty which puts all this together. And that was signed in 1967. So sort of a long mm. way around your question, so but I wanted to provide the background. It's a bit like the concept of international waters, is it? It's similar. A similar, it's a similar yeah. thing. Antarctic Treaty written yeah. at about mm. the same time. You know, it all comes from that and same idea. Are, are, are most countries in the world signed up to the Outer Space Treaty? Yeah, hugely, yeah. it's hugely yeah. recognised. 109 signatories, I think, 109 ratifications, sorry. So 109 countries have not only said we're gonna, we agree to this, but we're going to try and enact it and we're going to try and put some you know, measures in place to, to make sure we live up to our commitments. So just, yeah. yeah, so today what this all means is if you wanted to put up a satellite, right, mm -hmm. if one of you wanted to put up a satellite right now, there's a, a couple of hoops. So first you have to achieve um, domestic 
approval, so whatever country you're based in, and again, this is going to be a civil authority. Uh, then there is this international aspect, so you have to register your object um, with the United Nations so that it's being tracked in case something happens and there's a liability chain. The other thing that people don't always think about um, is insurance, so you have to get insurance on your object, um, which tends to be very expensive because if it causes damage, then um, that the payout on that is going to be very expensive. The only other thing I would add that's an interesting aspect that we're kind of getting into is this idea of cyber security and hacking satellites. So this is all what you would do if you were a law-abiding citizen. But one of the things that we're worried about is that there might be the opportunity for rogue elements, such as individuals, to satellites or computers, essentially. And so there's a risk of being able to hack them. But yeah, if you're going above board, that's sort of the main areas that you have to, so to get So it into. sounds as though the regulatory ratio and the Outer Space Treaty creates some regulation of all of this, rather better. I mean, th thinking about recent events, which you alluded to, um, deep down under the ocean, where it would appear, if I understand it correctly, that people were able to launch this submersible really without anybody having to approve anything very much, if I understand correctly. So in that sense, is space better regulated than the deep ocean? I think, yeah. if, if I understand it, um, so the ship that will mm. have, have had the submersible on it right. will actually be regulated by okay. an individual country. Mm. So mm. any ship that goes out to sea has to fly mm. the flag of an individual country. Okay. And okay. it's essentially the same for objects in space. Right. In fact, something that I think is interesting is that if, so what we have something called flags of convenience, where a country will say, look, you can fly my flag on your ship, but I won't mm. actually regulate mm. you. I think it'll be interesting to see if we could potentially have that in space mm. one day. Um, again, a way for potentially like rogue and actors to, to be able to access I space. A, a real, I think that's a real problem because going back to your point about insurance, insurance is required. If you want to launch something from the UK, you have to get basically fully comprehensive insurance. Yeah, fully comprehensive insurance, protecting your satellite, protecting their satellite for the lifetime of the mission. The, the, the values, that could be £60,000 a year commitment. Mm. And if you've got a 10-year satellite, that's, that's quite, a, quite a commitment to make. So instead what you do is you look around for a country that doesn't have that requirement in their national laws. So you might go to France, say. And now Fran what France requires is one year or on-orbit insurance. Because they say, well, if something's going to go wrong, you know, yourself, you buy something from the shops. If it's going to go wrong, it'll probably go wrong for, you know, in the first couple of months rather than in long term. So you go to France and France will say, yes, of course, we'll register yours and you need a year's insurance. Now, if you go to most, most launch providers, they'll provide you with a year's on orbit as part, of the, as part of the launch package. So it's much cheaper to go there. This is one of the things about regulation and laws and international treaties. The international treaties lay down the basic principles. The states are the ones who operationalize it and put that regulation in place. And that can differ dramatically depending on the state you're in. Exactly as you said, Jill, this notion of, of, of you know, forum shopping for the, for the friendliest regulator. Okay. So briefly, what, um, so two big questions for me, really. One is, what are the things we should be worried about, about all this? I mean, you talked about cyber security <coughs> as one of them. But, you know, what, okay, we, people might have questions about what's the point of, you know, firing these off into space. We might come on to that. But on the assumption that, you know, a combination of states and private companies are going to be doing this. What, what do we, you know, why should we worry about it? What are the things we're trying, the bad things we're trying to avoid happening? I'd, I'd put out first and foremost, sustainability, uh, the yeah. space environment, debris. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's one of the things when I've 
I do a lot of public speaking, is the younger generations are really hot on this, <clears throat> which I think is great, and I think is just part of their wider identity and, and culture and narrative about being concerned about environment. But um, yeah, so uh, certainly debris. I think there are also questions about, um, as space becomes more accessible, who we want in space and who we want to represent us, how we feel about, you know, for example, a, a private company potentially going to Mars, um, and, uh, you know, sort of the, the obligations that we have to the space environment on celestial bodies and in the, the vacuum of space. Mm. Um, so those are, are two. I mean, military, military activity in space is always, is always a big one as well. Um, I think we have, a, we have, a, we have a, a bit of a problem in space at the minute because one of the things that I'm working on and researching is tracking objects, tracking the space environment. Um, unless you're involved in the space environment, I, you know, I, there, I think there's this massive mis you know, misunderstanding that we know exactly what's up there and exactly what it's doing, and we don't. Getting custody of a satellite, getting actually understanding where a satellite is, is a really specialised job, and we don't spend anywhere near enough money on doing it. And the problem with that is it goes back to your sustainability point. If we don't know where things are, we're just putting more things up there and hoping that they don't bash into each other. Now, sure, space is big, right? But it's not that big, <laughs> especially the bit that we're using. We're using orbital space, which is a very predetermined, predefined area. So one of the things that I think, one of the things, you know, if, if I could say, if you spoke to your local MP, if you spoke to get them to invest in space tracking. Because space tracking is what makes all of these things tick. Understanding where stuff is, is really important. And we're not doing enough of it. Do we so, actually know how many things there are, how many satellites there are, it's, it's thousands and thousands. Isn't it? Yeah, there's, 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 I think, like we said, about 8,000 have been launched, I think about 4,500, 5,000 are up there, hmm. but that's changing, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're moving away from... Yeah, and we also have to talk about debris. I mean, we mm. track debris that's everything down to a certain size, um, and there is a network of universities in particular all over the world that are tracking these bits mm. of debris. So there's, yeah, there's active satellites and there, there's dead satellites. Most satellites that are put up now, partly because of insurance, um, are able to deorbit themselves at the end of their life cycle. Mm. But there's a lot of junk still that, that's up there floating from, from decades past. We haven't mentioned the International Space Station. I've completely forgotten about that. Is that still going? It is, isn't it? It yeah. is. And it's, Who's I, on it? I'll tell you something. Yeah. In, in, in a world where we see real fractured geopolitics, mm. where getting agreement <laughs> seems to be impossible on anything, the ISS is just mm. a little reminder that we can mm. actually get together and do things diplomatically when we really, really want to. It's a proper triumph. Mm. And it will go soon. You know, it's, it's, it's showing its age. It's, it's going to, you know... It's going to be 30, 35. It's going to be, you know, in the mid-30s. Now, in my mid-30s, I was in the prime of life. Look at me now, <laughs> right? And, and, and it's going to be the same with the ISS. It's going to get old and creaky and stuff, and we're going to have to bring it down. <clears throat> I, I don't know what you think, Joe. I don't know what you think. I don't think we'll see anything like it. I think we'll see national space stations. Already the Chinese have got a space station up yeah. there. Mm. I think we'll see a return to smaller yeah. national space stations. And I think, as humanity, 
we'll have lost a little something. And who's on the ISS at the moment? Americans and Russians, or and uh, others? Yeah, Americans, Russians, Europeans. Yeah, That's the yeah. general sort of um, the yeah. general sort of pattern of, of astronauts. Okay. I would just say about the International Space Station, it is an interesting case talking about feedback loops because a lot of people don't realize that it actually initially started out as an American project that involved only their alliances during the Cold War. So it was a way to counter the Soviet Union's Mir space st uh, space shuttle when it. Um, detente happened and it looked like the Soviet Union was was democratizing. The Americans intentionally brought the Russians in, uh, partly to establish better diplomatic ties, also to use up the um, expertise and the um, missile, uh, the sorry, the rockets that had been used to use all of that up so that it wasn't, the devil makes work for idle hands, so that it wasn't used elsewhere. So the International Space Station was actually very much driven by politics in those first instances. And it's not immune to politics now. When the war in Ukraine broke out, the um, Russians were saying some very inflammatory things, threatening to leave astronauts mm -hmm. on the space station and so on. Um, it would never happen. But <clears throat> so it does still sort of play a role in diplomacy. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's getting old now. I've heard people say it smells a bit like a gym locker room <laughs> if you go on there. <laughs> yeah. So, but it is an example then. And from what you've said also, that the, in terms of what might be perceived to be a potential threat of you know, the military use of space, by superpowers. I mean, that you know, mercifully, that doesn't seem to happen, and people seem to behave, you know, reasonably acceptably. I think. Most of the time, the, I think perhaps far. there's a lot that we don't know about. Well, of shall course, we say. yeah. yeah. Mm. And, and I would just say the other. The other. <clears throat> what I think is interesting is that even though we have these treaties in place that say that there's no weapons of mass destruction in space and that space is for peaceful purposes, one of the things that's tricky about space is all technology up there is dual use or almost all of it. Mm. So anything that can be used for civilian purposes mm. can be used for military purposes. So it's essentially impossible to restrict military um, infrastructure from space. But what's interesting to me is that when countries do kind of bend the rules, they tend to try and justify it in the language of the, of the treaties themselves. So one of the things that we were seeing for a while was people experimenting with anti-satellite weapons, which you may have heard about in, in the news. Very controversial because it creates debris clouds that could threaten all of the other um, objects that are in space. What's interesting is that it's not a weapon of mass destruction, so it's technically not illegal. Very taboo, but not illegal. And the countries have been targeting their own um, objects. So if India, for example, shot down one of their own satellites. What, just to demonstrate that they could do yeah. it? Yeah, to, I mean, to, they tend yeah, to say, yeah. "Oh, it was it was broken, and we needed right, to okay. get rid of it." So there's. But they could tomorrow shoot down somebody else's. That's the point. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it's 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 saber rattling in a yeah. in a way. Um, last question for me before we th throw it open to the floor, which we are, after all, is a literature festival, and the I, one thing that fascinates me is the relationship between science fiction and all of this. Um, a bit of a big question, really, but can we unpick that? You know, to what extent is science fiction, you know, leading what happens in space, or, or to what extent is it reflecting what's actually happening in space, or are they completely different? I think there's, I think you've got you've got a, you've got a number of answers here, and I'll try I'll try and be brief. Um, firstly, if you go into NASA right now and threw a stick, you would hit five Star Trek fans. <laughs> right? you, you know, it, it's, it's a great... Mm. Uh, science fiction is, is, is the gateway. It's the mm. gateway drug into the world of space and into the world. It, it's, you know, it's what got me into it. 
Um, so I think, I think we've got the, the inspirational quality, the, the telling of stories. Why is, the, why is Apollo endured? Because essentially, it's a lot of really interesting human stories, isn't it? Apollo 13, getting three people back across there. You know, Gene Kranz in the control room. It, it, it's all about these people. It's a, it's a story. And I think, I think there's a really powerful narrative. Um, second, and this is one of my bugbears, I think science fiction is both, because it's a friend to science, because it attracts people, it also creates unrealistic expectations. It also creates, a, you know, a sort of a, how shall I say this? It, it makes technology accessible that frankly simply isn't accessible. You know, we are not going to travel faster than light. We are not going to be put into deep freeze and wake up at Jupiter. We're not going to be able to teleport across the path. That technology is fantastical and impossible and defies every known law of physics, right? But yet science fiction's promised us it. Where's my jetpack? Where's my <laughs> meal in a, in a pill? You know? So science fiction makes, it makes promises that it can't keep as well. So I think it's, it's a real sort of dual relationship. It, it inspires and it gets, it gets us in it. It tells us stories that makes us want to be part of it but it also promises things that maybe it can't deliver, creating unrealistic expectations. And I suspect where Jill's gonna come in about the budgets <laughs> and the money and the finance, it creates that, it creates that, that, that expectation. I've given you a billion dollars, where's my space plane? <laughs> I actually wasn't gonna talk about money, thank you. Um, just two thoughts on that. Um, for one, so again, I, I'm not actually, a huge science fiction reader, and I sometimes highlight that so that people know you don't have to be in order to get into space active. There are a lot of different ways you can be involved in space. Um, but uh, one thing I think that it's useful for is allowing us to imagine and sort of practice scenarios. So, you know, if, if whether it's utopian or dystopian, I think it's actually proven quite useful in a lot of different ways. To th I mean, Arthur C. Clarke wrote about global positioning before it existed. Mm -hmm. So I think in, in some ways it's, it's quite helpful in that sense. Um, I, I feel like I'm talking a lot about feedback loops today, but the other, the other thing I wanted to highlight is I do think it's interesting. I have read about science fiction, so sort of a meta, <laughs> I have a meta interest in science fiction, and the ways in which our politics on Earth do get injected into it. So during the Cold War, I mean, I believe um, Star Trek was sort of, uh, there's a, a very much a subtext about um, communist societies and, and democratic societies and so on. I personally have written about gender, the use of gender in outer space. I think it's interesting how in a lot of films, um, aliens are portrayed as feminine and often very beautiful feminine and then the um, masculine, often American hero has to come in and dominate these evil um, aliens. Often the alien then impregnates the male if you think about alien, and then the male has to give birth, um, and so on. So I think it's also interesting to deconstruct the way um, the yeah the narratives that we see in science fiction, and be able to think critically about what that means for how we think about the future, and also what it reflects for us in the past. And it, it, I mean, absolutely agree with you because it does. There's there's a very sort of fine line between science fiction and science factual stuff. You look at the work of Carl Sagan, for example treads the line, he, he, was a, he was a cosmologist, but he also wrote fiction. Um, you know, one of the, one of the texts on um, getting resources from the solar system is John S. Lewis, Mining the Skies. It is a brilliant book, and he, you know, John S. Lewis was a fantastic cosmologist, but again, relying on, on, on technology that just wasn't quite there. We were just reaching for it, and we haven't quite got there. So I think, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's this relationship, this wonderful relationship, inspiring, telling us stories, giving us these possibilities, giving us these 
I, I don't think it's a predictor. I think, I think you know, if, if one of the things that um, I've written on is, is science fiction as a legal predictor, and I don't think it can, because ultimately these are people trying to tell stories. They have no more insight than we do. But they're, they're just trying to they're just trying to pose ideas and and and, and swap around. You know the, the Star Trek communicators. Well, we've we've all got one now, haven't we? And that's mm. 30, 40 years afterwards. So mm. I think you know I think much is made of the predictive sort of paradigm. It's not what I share. I think, but I think it is interesting and reflects the the, the technology that we've got now and the technology that is just out of reach. I, I right. can't see a Star Wars movie talking about the future of space insurance. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it, I've no, pitched one, honestly. Yeah, yeah, keep trying, keep trying. Okay, right, we have 10 minutes or so left. Um, we have a mic to bring round for anybody who'd like to ask a question. I've got two candidates already. Let's start with our friend here. And we'll come to Thanks. Guy over there next. Thank you very much. This was, this was interesting and fun, both of you. Thank you. Um, could you say a word, Jill, about the, uh, the Ukraine war? Uh, about a year ago, we were hearing a lot about uh, Elon Musk's Starlink system being absolutely central to the Ukrainian armed forces um, able to understand what was going on and, and, and military significance. And in the context of what you said about both the state and the private sector, and states having said that they won't do wicked things in space, uh, wouldn't it be completely reasonable for Russian hackers to be out there hacking Starlink because it's part of him? I mean, just what's going on? And why are we not hearing much about it anymore? Good question. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's an interesting case. I have to say, when I... Um, years ago, everybody absolutely loved Elon Musk, and I've always thought he was a bit of a rogue element, so I'm feeling slightly validated now that <laughs> people are, are seeing him, I think, a bit more for who he really is. So, I mean, I think this is part of a bigger, more complicated picture around the um, military infrastructure in space and how it is in, um, increasingly outsourced to commercial entities and what happens when we have security issues around that. So these, these days, um, even militaries rely heavily on on, on commercial infrastructure. Um, so I think it was during the Iraq war at some point the United States actually um, maxed out their capacity for remote sensing satellites so they began buying off the shelf imagery of, of certain areas that they wanted to look at. At one point I know they also bought all of the imagery that was out there in order to exclude anyone else from being able to purchase it. Um, but so <clears throat> Yeah, so it's getting, it's a lot messier now. In my own research, I talk about the hybridization of, of entities. So I think also we tend to think of it as being a dichotomy between government funded and commercially and commercial actors, when in reality, it's a lot messier <clears throat> overlap. So a lot of commercial entities are government funded. So what does that mean in terms of access and who has a right to what? So yeah, Ukraine has been complicated because the other thing is that military activity has always been reliant on, on space, um, on the space segment since it's um, been present, but it's increasing now. So um, military activity is heavily reliant on, on space um, as a force multiplier. Um, yeah, so um, for those who don't know, if I understand it correctly, the situation was that Ukraine was, was using um, the, some of the satellite infrastructure that had been that was owned by um, Elon Musk's company, and at some point he began excluding them from having access to it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it raises questions about um, power, who has power in space, and um, why is it not being talked more about? I mean, maybe there's something more nefarious going on, or is it simply the attention span of the public and the media? Um, but I don't know, Chris, do you have further thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, again, I think what we're seeing is a truly integrated war here. 
we're seeing a war where there isn't a space element. I mean, one of, one of the, again, one of the staples of science fiction is your space war. That's not going to happen, not, not in Earth orbit. We're not going to do that. But what we're seeing is an integration of orbital capabilities, ground capabilities, all providing these, these battlefield commanders with you know, decision-making tools. And that's exactly what, back in Ukraine, that's exactly what they were using Starlink for. They were using it basically as an internet hub. They were sending out um, Starlink dishes and Starlink ports that the Ukrainian generals could plug in and get access to this information real time. And as Jill says, what they'll be doing, they'll be accessing commercially available satellite pictures and imagery. It won't be tapping into military satellites, it'll be tapping into Planet Labs, it'll be tapping into, you know, a whole range of private providers that can provide really close-up detail of what's happening on the ground. Just to follow up to that then, how is that not contravening the Outer Space Treaty? Because surely it is, okay, it's not, it's not weapons of mass destruction in space, but it's using what's in space to conduct a war on Earth. Now, it? this is where we get into the nuances of international law. <laughs> and Stephen Hawking's at the start of his book, A Brief History of Time, says, every time I use an equation, I know I'm going to lose a reader. <laughs> and every time I use a principle of international law, please feel free to walk away. But what we're, what, we're seeing, what, we're, what we're essentially doing here is the treaty was designed to promote peaceful purposes. Mm. Now, in the UN um, Charter, peaceful is held to be non-aggressive. Mm. So they can argue it's defensive. Defensive weaponry, okay. on the right. other hand, is not yeah, aggressive. Yeah. Okay. The Starlink is allowing me to defend myself. Yeah. The use of Planet Labs is allowing me yeah. to defend myself. It sounds very similar to the arguments about the use of chemical weapons in war and how Absolutely. you can justify it, particularly Absolutely. in the second. Anyway, sorry, we've gone off point. It's not the, right. Uh, could we get the mic, please, to our friend there? Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Um, actually, I just want to briefly mention Arthur C. Clarke, he did have that article about uh, communication satellites yeah. and synchronous orbit, and he famously um, uh, re later regretted not patenting the idea, and he had a friend who was a lawyer and sci-fi writer who actually wrote a science fiction story about what ha would happen if Arthur C. Clarke tried to patent that idea. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of like a law school exam hypothetical, <laughs> yeah. but it was published in Analog, which is like one of the majors. <laughs> but my, my real question is about Starlink. And I was just curious to, to ask, what are your opinions on whether it's going to be economically viable in the future? They still receive so many government subsidies. They talk about helping the developing world, but the ground communications equipment is quite expensive. And I'd just be curious, what is your thoughts on how actually economically viable it's going to be compared to the usual synchronous orbit satellites? And if you have time, I'd love to hear more thoughts about the science fiction angle. It seems that much of science fiction is very skeptical of technological progress. Um, but so many of the sort of Silicon Valley tech bros, which do a lot of dangerous stuff with their work, are huge sci-fi fans, and, and that kind of helps them buy into this narrative of sort of unlimited, sort of bro-y progress. <laughs> so I'm curious, you know, what is, what is even the negative effect of science fiction in the political context of space? Thanks. I'm going to steal the phrase bro-y progress. I love it. <laughs> Um, Chris, why don't you start? So in terms of the, econo the, the economics of Starlink, that is something that time is going to tell. I mean, first thing, as with all, as with all space program projects, especially on the scale of Starlink, we're talking thousands and thousands of satellites. It's expensive. It's an expensive thing to put up there. So if I'm an investor, am I going to get a return on that investment quickly? The answer is going to come back, no, I'm not. That's why Musk can do it, because it, it's his money, and he doesn't care on return on investment. He's got PayPal, you know, propping his coffers up, so he didn't have to worry about return on investment. But I think there's a question about long-term viability. The question is going to come is when the competitors arrive. 
So Amazon have got, um, Jeff Bezos has got uh, Project Kuiper that he's looking to put, again, 10,000 satellites in providing global internet coverage. Now you imagine tying that in with Amazon Prime. You, you get Amazon Prime, you pay £80 a month, oh, we give you internet from space for free, we give you free delivery. It becomes a very attractive package that I think is going to, you know, put Starlink under a bit of pressure. OneWeb, the UK has got OneWeb. Again, and hundreds of satellites. So it'll be interesting to see what the competitors are. We don't have a full picture of it yet. Musk's price is going to have to come down because at the minute I can get much more reliable cable broadband than I ever need from, from Starlink. So I think, I think kind of the viability, it, it, it sounds like I'm copying out, but honestly, we don't know the answer yet. Let's see what happens when Amazon get up there. Let's see what happens when, you know, the Chinese companies that are planning tens of thousands of, of, of satellites to, to make a constellation as well. The only thing I would add to, agree with everything, the only thing I would add to that is I also think we're going to continue to see this being a hybrid actor that has government backing. I think it's going to be a long way away before we have completely financially independent commercial entities. Um, you know, it's going to get it's going to continue to get messier and messier. But it's in an individual government's interest to prop up companies like this because they're getting you know maybe not financial payoffs, but you know infrastructure that's important for society. So yeah, the only other thing I would add is that I think it's it's not going to be a clear, this is a profit-making, freestanding company anytime soon. Okay, thank you. We have time for one or maybe two quick questions. Can we... Um... Yeah, we've just got time for one more okay. question, if okay. we just have some short answers okay. from the panel. Uh, I think thank our you. friend over here would like to ask a question. Thank you very much for the talk, really enjoyed it. I've written my question down in case I lose my train of thought. Um, I was just going to ask what you think it says um, or what your thoughts are about the human condition uh, that we tend to devote so much money and attention to surveillance uh, funding infrastructure uh, which is motivated by distrust uh, either of nations enemies or of their own populations. Um, I mean initially when a new text developed it seems like governments take the risks uh, which seem to be motiva motivated by a passion to explore um, and then the money seems to materialize around somewhat distrusting end goals like surveillance. Um, most philosophy does seem to be an outlier to this, and uh, whether you respect him as a person, um, you can respect his daring approach to capitalism. Uh, and it seems like um, our rate of progress along the sort of Kardashev scale is somewhat inversely proportional to our tendency to distrust. And uh, you know, you see this with governments uh, in the Cold War. Uh, both sides did want to spend money on hospitals and schools, but ended up spending it on nukes instead. Um, and I was just wondering if in the future at some point, do you think it's possible somewhat to maybe overcome the rational irrationality of game theory um, within geopolitics? Mm. I'm guessing say... you're a political science student. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, you're not? Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I'll just say briefly a, a, a few thoughts around that. It's a great question, but there's a lot there. Uh, just to point out, um, actually, reconnaissance is the reason that we have the um, the legal infrastructure that we have. We thought about keeping it as airspace, um, and it, there was a dispute between the Soviet Union and the United States about whether or not to, to have it as airspace where sovereignty expended, extended into space or to use the high seas analogy. And it was actually the, um, the Americans preferred the outer space, the high seas analogy, because they wanted to be able to spy on the Soviet Union, which was a more closed society and had res uh, less transparency. So actually, the reason reconnaissance is the reason we have um, neutrality in outer space. Uh, 
the uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not all that optimistic about human nature and the continued um, likelihood of geopolitics and rail politics leading us to continue to want to use space for reconnaissance purposes. The only other, last thing I would add is, is this idea of opportunity cost, spending money on space when it could be spent elsewhere. Um, this is always going to be an ongoing debate. I think it, we need to not see it as necessarily as an either or. Um, in some ways, space activity feeds into um, other um, projects on Earth that are going to benefit humanity. But I think it's absolutely valid to ask questions about space budgets and what we should be doing um, and not just accept it as in, in sort of a deterministic sense that because we're able to do something, we will. And because we have the money to spend on it, we should. Uh, so I think those are important questions to keep asking. Can I just make one very last quick point? I think what you're saying filters down to one of the fundamental problems we have with space and one of the things that I hope people take away. Traditionally, the Apollo, the, 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 the spatial, space was seen as theirs. It wasn't ours. Yeah, we were watching on. We were, we were watching these stories. We need to make space ours. We need to make it accountable, so we need to be in the ears of local representatives, of elected representatives, so we can shape the direction, so that we can identify the values we want to take forward. And that's where I think that the, the real future lies, in... I hate the expression of democratizing space because I think it's more than that. It's about embracing shared values. It's about identifying those values. It's about being part of the conversation. That only happens when space stops being Apollo and rockets and wonder and awe and starts being about the things that really matter and start mattering to us as well. Um, I've just heard the City Hall clock strike the half hour, so sadly we've um, run out of time. Uh, but can we show our appreciation, please, for um, Jill and for Chris? Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the festival, please subscribe, share this episode with others and leave a rating. Don't forget to mark your calendars as the Bradford Literature Festival returns for its 10th year from 28th of June to the 7th of July 2024.